Gen Talk, the Arsenal podcast. I'm your host for today, Schwinn, and I'm joined by Tony. How are you doing, Tony? I'm not too bad, football aside, thanks. Yeah, it's been one of those days, and um, fortunately or unfortunately, Tez is missing out. He's dealing with a bout of illness, and I don't know if I believe him. I think he just doesn't want to talk Arsenal right now because no one wants to watch us, but... Uh, I'll take over for today, and we'll be joining. Uh, we'll be joined by some guests later today f- from from the Serie A realm of things in football, who are very well versed with Italian football. And we'll look for our for our upcoming tie against Milan and discuss how things might go there. But before we get in with that, get in on that, and uh, discuss all things Europa League, I think we we have to discuss this this Brighton game and whatever happened um, on Sunday. So, let's start with your thoughts on the lineup, Tony, and uh, how the team shaped up. It's a weird one for me because I think a lot of people moaned about the back five. But for me, we were never as bad as we are now when we played the back five. Uh, and given the players we had uh, yesterday, it would have been more suited to a back five, I feel. I can half understand why he played Chambers because he was worried about the aerial threat of of Glenn Murray and Brighton in general, but Glenn Murray pulling off to the back post and he thought Chambers would be better to deal with that than Bellerin and you you can't really argue with that, but that completely stifles our attacking intent down that side because Chambers is, will try and get forward. I I don't even think it's a criticism of him, but he's not a natural, a natural right back. He's also not a natural athlete. So it does make it difficult for him to get forward. Uh, They were more than happy to leave him free on the right, knowing that, likelihood was he's not going to go and beat a man. He's not going to whip in a, a, a potential goal-scoring cross. Um, so I think he kind of stifled our attacking intent to, to sure up at the back against against their threat. Um, apart from that, everything else, I mean, uh, I'm still always going to disagree with Iwobi being on our side. I thought he was horrible yesterday as well. I thought he was our worst player by a distance, um, as did most in the ground. I, I don't know what people saw on TV. But um, apart from that, I don't, I don't think there's really too much you can argue with. Ramsey, uh, I think him being dropped probably confirmed that he was the leak to the papers. Um, and it's quite interesting on that, that since that leak's come out, there's also been stories leaked that Ramsey's going to be sold in the summer because he's not signed the contract, and then he gets dropped. For me, that's no coincidence. Could be wrong, but just knowing what I know about the industry of football, um, I don't think that's a coincidence. Yeah, I mean, um, it's funny you mentioned that because usually when, you know, a player is missing for X, Y, or Z reason, then Arsenal will, you know, put a tweet out after they announce the lineups telling the fans why that player is missing. I mean, it happened with Jack the previous game, and they said Jack's picked up a knock, so, you know, he's missing out. But there was nothing on Ramsey at all, which was a little surprising to me. But I think yeah, Wenger said in his press conference after that he was fully fit. We just decided to give him a rest, which is ludicrous. Like you can't the way we're playing, you you can't rest people. Yeah, no, you can't. And I mean, our away forms right now just you know shouts for help. So do with more hands on deck, and it just it just seems very counterintuitive. Um, but yeah, I mean, it, I agree. I think a back three would have suited us more. And it, again, Iwobi was really really non-existent today. I mean, he, uh, yesterday. I mean didn't feel like he really contributed in any manner. Um, and, in fact, he almost gave us a scare late in the second half, um, which, was, which you know, could have resulted in what that, at that point would have been 3-1, I think. So that, could, that game could have been buried right there. But, uh, I mean, when I saw the lineup, uh, Chambers was someone who stuck out for me 
because I thought Izquierdo would have his, you know, have, would, would be rubbing his hands at that point just because we've seen what Montero did to Chambers once with his pace. And Izquierdo, if anything, has more pace, I would argue, than Montero. What do you make of Chambers' performance yesterday at right back? Um, I don't think he was tested defensively, really. I've, the, the thing with Jefferson Montero, I know he's gone off the boil in the last few years, but he was always very difficult to play against because he could go both ways. It wasn't that he was the quickest. It was you didn't know what way to show him because he was equally happy to go e- either way. It's a bit similar to when Santi played wide. It was always quite hard for defenders because you can't get too close because he can turn you in either way. Whereas Izquierdo is quicker, but you know 90% of the time he's going to go in on his right foot. So it is easier to play against. I mean, when I'm not saying I played to any, any level, but when I played, I always preferred to play against someone who had a very strong set, but then a, a very glaring weakness rather than someone that was an all-rounder because you can defend against them and know where to show them. Um, so I, I wasn't... Too, a lot of people made that Montero comparison before the game, but for me, it wasn't much of a worry. In terms of how he played... Uh, defensively, I don't think he'd done anything wrong. I don't think he was really tested. So it's hard to say he'd done anything brilliantly, but he didn't also do anything wrong. Um, and as I said, attacking-wise, he, he was never really going to be an attacking threat. Um, as I said, where I think when got it wrong with him is if you wanted to shore up with a bit extra height at the back, go to a back five and put him in the in the uh, free in the middle with Mustafi and Koscielny and then put Hector at right wing back, and you still keep your somewhat attacking threat, you keep your pace, but you also do get that extra height at the back. Yeah, I mean, of course, hindsight is twenty twenty. so, you know, having the benefit of watching Iwobi and what he didn't bring to the team, you know, it's, I feel I agree with you, but, I mean, moving up the field, and I feel this this could probably become a pattern today, but moving up the field... Speaking of Jack and Mesut and Mickey, I mean, our creative players, right? I feel they brought nothing yesterday. I mean, apart from a moment or two, um, I think nothing decisive came out of that. As someone who was at the ground, how, how frustrating was it to, to watch us give the ball away and have absolutely no fluidity? I think what, what was more, more troubling is that they were, they were quite intent on getting a lot of people behind the ball. Even if they didn't have a lot of people behind the ball, they left next to no space to run in behind for Aubameyang. Um, so when, when you do that, when it's tightly packed, you need to get more people in the box because with Aubameyang having no room to run into, Jack, Mickey, Mesut, whoever, could only really play into his feet. And then if you're playing into his feet, he's going to have his back to goal, so it's not really going to lead to a goal-scoring chance. What you need to do when when a team defend pack deep like that is get as many players in the box as possible and you may not win the first ball but a second ball could fall to you um it also rather than Aubameyang only having his back to goal being able to play the ball backwards when he gets it if he's got someone alongside him or two people alongside him there's there's more options for him to play and it's harder to defend against so I felt a bit I wouldn't say any of them played bad I think they were ineffective but I think that was due to the system and I think it's been a problem for a while I've said on here many times that we need players that run away from the ball or, or join in on with the attack. And as I said, all, all of them want the ball to feet. And it just left Aubameyang really isolated. I, I thought Aubameyang done well with what he was given. Um, he maybe he probably could have done better with a chance at the end. He didn't make the best contact. But um, I just don't think they got enough people around him. And with all them having the ball, they didn't really have an option to be creative because there was no space for Aubameyang to run into Speaking of goals and, and chances, uh, 
Brighton got off the mark very early on, and kudos to Brighton. I, I thought they were very decisive yesterday, and I thought they had a definitive game plan, unlike us. And they stuck with it, despite having gone down early in the second half. Uh, I, I think they did very well to st- stick with their guns and you know hold on to their lines and, and, and be very stubborn defense. But the first goal, um, and the second goal, actually, we could probably talk about both at the same time. Walk me through what uh, Petr Cech is doing there. I mean, the first one is just a joke. I, I don't think he knew Shane Duffy was behind him, which... I'm not making an excuse for him because it is inexcusable, but he went to catch that ball sort of at head high, a bit sort of lackadaisical, half thinking about what he was going to do, and then and Duffy came in behind him and won it. Um, look, you have to claim that. But when it, as I said, he didn't claim it at his highest point, not even close. So I, I just don't think he knew Duffy was there, which is, is as poor as not claiming it itself. But I think if he knew Duffy was there, he still would have claimed it. But he didn't go in with any strength. I think he just thought he was unchallenged. Um, there wasn't a man on Duffy either, was there? Was uh, he ran from deep. Unmarked, it's, right? it's always going to be a problem with a zone. He ran from deep. Mm. Uh, they, they were targeting back post corners quite a lot, as were we, actually. Both teams seem to seem to be going back post on corners quite a lot. Um, but I, I don't think... Look, even if there was a man on Duffy, that ball is... If I was a defender, the keeper should be claiming that all day. It's close to the keeper. He wasn't being blocked off. Uh, the only person near him was Iwobi. So if he, if anyone says he's being blocked off, it's by his own player. Um, that's not a criticism of Iwobi. I'll leave that for later. Um, but yeah, I think that I think as a defender, I, I know they say never switch off, but when a ball comes in like that, you can only the only the only thing a keeper can do is catch that ball. So you do switch off. I mean, it's like other times when someone plays a five-yard pass, you you may switch off because it's that ball has to be played five yards. It's an easy ball. That's that's bread and butter for check he's done that a million times in his career core balls like that so i could understand if if whoever was meant to be marking duffy didn't go with him especially as he had to run on them because of zonal marking i feel it's so easy to to know what we're going to do wrong and wh- where we sort of struggle uh you know whether it's from set pieces open play or or not that, that there just doesn't seem to be any work on on these at the training ground and I think someone, it was Hector Bellerin perhaps who said recently that, you know, we work more than anyone on set pieces. Now, I don't remember whether the context was offensive or, or defensive, but I mean, th- there's been a big question about zonal marking and I wanted to get your quick thoughts on that. I mean, are, are you someone who is a particular proponent or one or the other, or are you just an advocate for doing it well? Uh, as the, I think both systems are as good as each other if done well. I think a good or an excellent delivery, it doesn't matter what your system is. Uh, if, if the delivery is right, you're going to struggle. I think what, why a lot of people like man marking is because there's someone accountable. If your man scores, it's your fault. It's as simple as that. Whereas zonal is difficult to put the blame on someone because it's, like, like, it's not like one person per zone. They'll say, like, say the six-yard box, there's four players. That's your, that's your four-player zone. And so there's no one person accountable, which is what people don't like. Um, but... I remember the year we started playing zonal marking and we got hammered for it. The best defence from set pieces in the league that year, I think, was Sunderland. It was someone not brilliant, um, but they had the best defence from set pieces and they they were zonal marking. So if you do it well, it can work. It's the same as if you do man marking well, it can work. If you do man marking poorly, you'll concede a lot of goals and the same with zonal. As long as as long as you do your job and you know you have you have that synergy in the box that, okay, people understand where, where they're supposed to go. I think, I think zonal could work. I mean, there's all, 
obviously a lens on it, I feel, just because we've been doing it for so long. And so have teams like Liverpool that have sort of struggled when it comes to uh, to set-piece marking. But if you do it right, I don't see any reason for it to not work. Speaking of speaking of the goals we conceded, the second one, um, ball whipped in from the right flank. Beautiful ball, actually. And Glenn Murray, uh, with a towering header, should Czech have done better there? Well, on the start of, I mean, this is kind of going back to what I was saying on the City podcast the other day, that there was three mistakes leading to, get to that goal. Koscielny's um, ball was horrible. That, that's a, a very bad error. Because uh, literally, the ball wasn't anywhere near Jack. He, he was five yards away from him. Uh, then you're right, it's a good ball. But Mustafi, for some reason, I don't know if he misread the flight of the ball, but he made a movement forward and then, and then had to backpedal. Had he not made that foot made that, he either would have won the header or not given Murray a free header, which probably means he doesn't score. In the grand scheme of things, it's probably only a small error. Re- misreading the flight of ball can happen, but you'd expect that. I know transfer fee doesn't uh, impact performance, but you'd expect a forty million pound defender to not misread the flight of a ball. Um, as I said, it's like I watch it again. If you, if you don't know what I'm talking about, he took two steps forward and then had to backpedal. And Murray probably beat him to it by a step, half a step. So had he not taken them two steps forward, he would have, as I said, at least either won it or at least put so much pressure on Murray that he wouldn't have um, been able to get a solid contact on it. And then from then, I said straight away, we was behind that goal as the the away fans. I said straight away, that's a huge error from Czech. So initially, obviously, we knew Koscielny's ball was terrible. I didn't see Mustafi's error from in the ground. It was only when I watched it back. But... I went, oh, that's that's like disgraceful from Czech. And no one around me really, a few people said it, but it wasn't like a a majority of people thought that. And then uh, reading online at half time, people were saying that no one was really blaming Czech like massively. They were saying, oh, he could have done better. But having seen it back, it's, it's a glaring error. The ball went in the middle of the goal. If he stands up, it hits his foot. Um, and then obviously he's come out and admitted fault for it. So I think now people are saying it was Czech's fault, and some some did think it at the time, but it wasn't like it was widely widely thought of. But yeah, he has to do better. That's as I said, if you stand up, the ball hits your shin, it goes bang in the middle of the goal. Yeah, I mean, I'll be honest. Uh, when I when I watched it on TV, it, it was one of those where the goalkeeper didn't have to move. You know, you you put a leg out, or even if you just dive on the spot instead of having to you know dive a distance. I thought he could have saved it. And I mean, if eventually what went underneath his arm, I think he got some connection on it, but he completely misjudged it, perhaps. Um, I don't know if the ball bounced on the ground uh, before he was uh, he was going to save it. That could have put him off, you know, a little bit. But at this point, I think I'm just looking for excuses. I mean, a top-level goalkeeper, if a ball is coming right at you from a header that you, you know, it's not as if it's a rocket shot or like a half volley that's bound to ripple the net. I think you've got to do better there. I don't even. I, I can't offer a bounce as an excuse because it went under him. If it goes over you with a bounce, you can go. Oh, I bounced in front of him. It made it difficult. If when it bounces, it makes the ball come up, not down. So I, d- I don't see how a bounce. And as I said, I think it was right underneath him in terms of it. He's a tricep, pretty much. But yeah, I, I mean, I don't. For me, you can't make excuses for that. It's it goes down as has to save, really. Mm-hmm. Moving on after the second goal, we we sort of try to you know shift gears and it will be had an attempt uh, a goal which uh, you know I think which led to a corner and then things started to pick up a little bit you know we picked the tempo up a little bit and with a little bit of luck a little bit of a scrambled play 
Kranich Chaka is able to find Aubameyang, whether he wanted to do that or not, we can discuss. I think that's open for debate. Everyone seems pretty positive that that was a pass by Chaka. I would like to know your thoughts on that. But apart from Aubameyang slotting in the goal comfortably and then Koscielny hitting the post, did you expect us to come out in the second half with more impetus and more purpose? Um, so, going on the goal, um, I, for me, Xhaka 100% meant it. I thought that at the time, as we were down the other end, and a, a few people around me were like, oh, what did Xhaka do? Because it was a bit of a weird contact, um, looking from 85 yards away. But having seen it back, like we saw the highlights on the big screen at half-time, and, and everyone then realised that he did mean it, the way he picked it out. I thought it was an excellent ball. Um, and when you score like that, you have to say excellent ball. Obviously, if you don't, then you could probably have a go at him for not shooting. But when it comes off, I think you've just got to credit where it's due, really. Mm-hmm. Um, in t- yeah, then Koscielny hit the post. I think we had we had a bit of momentum, and half time came at the came at the wrong time. I got ahead of got not got ahead of ourselves, but built up a bit of steam is, is probably the, the best uh, saying to use. Half time came at the wrong time, but then uh, surprisingly we came out the start of the second half and carried on where we left off, which is unusual. Usually there's a bit of a low after that. And it was a good 20 minutes where it was all us, but nothing really clean cut was created. And I think uh, the injury to Scalotto, is it? Uh, right, yeah. with, with the Kalasanac challenge, that killed all momentum. I'm not saying we would have come back and won it if that didn't happen. I, I don't know what would have happened, but it seemed like everything we was doing was at 100 miles an hour, quite incisive, uh, controlling the ball really well. They couldn't get out. All they could do was sort of hoof it long, and then we would attack again. It was wave after wave of attack. And then that six or seven minutes while he was down, it just allowed them to calm themselves, get back in the game, and also have a breather because it's not easy when teams are just coming wave a wave that you uh, attack after attack. You don't get a chance to rest. Even when the ball went out for a, 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 a corner or a throw on, we was getting it back in as quick as possible. Every time that uh, they, the ball went off for a goal kick, Matt Ryan was taking a drink, shifting to the other side to try and buy them time. And then, uh, as I said, they got a big block of time with, with that injury. And I think that, as I said, I don't want to say killed our chances because I'm not saying we would have won if that didn't happen, but it definitely uh, hampered us. Um, I meant to talk to you about that because, I mean, that that injury that um, Shalotto, you know, uh, encumbered at that point. Th- there were two things about that. Number one um, would be the horrible decision, right? I mean, we criticize refs for not awarding us stuff, but I think we all can join in unison here and, and say that we need refs to be consistent, you know, for for all teams. And I mean, th- that was as blatant as a second yellow, if not a red. One could argue. Um, I mean, I thought Stuart Atwell had a pretty horrible game and especially in certain moments as, as someone who was on the ground and when you didn't see that second yellow card brandished were you completely shocked I'll, I'll be completely honest uh it was so it was on about the halfway line so just inside our house so it's about 60 yards from us not a single person in the arsenal end thought it was a foul it didn't it just looked like they'd come together um Kolasinac had got the touch yeah you, you could see you could see he was hurt but it looked it just looked like a coming together as i said no one like the ref didn't give a foul obviously the linesman didn't give a foul and, and then when knockout started moaning we all thought the ref's going to bottle it and send him off there and like because when i say bottled it i mean because he wasn't going to give anything and then all the brighton players started going mad um I, I heard an interview with lewis dunk after the game and he said uh he went to the ref and the ref said that they both had their eyes on the ball it was a coming together 
it happens. And, and Dunk said, to be fair, I completely agree with it. He said it's sad that a player got injured from it and luckily the player's fine. But um, he said, I, I can completely see where the uh, where the refs come from. And Dunk was maybe 20 yards ahead of me in terms of he was probably on about the edge of the area. But that was a similar view to what we had. Having seen it back, it probably, I don't think it was a straight red, but it probably was a second booking. But mm. as I said, no one from our end of the ground and even their players really thought it was a second booking at the time. What about the replays? I mean, uh, were there replays playing of this as the game had stopped? Uh, were there any uh, moans and oohs and ahs as, as the big screen was probably showing the contact in slower motion? Mm-hmm. Usually it looks worse in slower motion, but was that something that got a, a reaction from the crowd? No, they're not allowed. Uh, any contentious in, uh, incident in a game mm. is not allowed to be reshown. Um like anything, a red card, uh, a goal, even if a goal scored and it's given and it's potentially offside, uh, they're not allowed to show it. So uh, but that's a, a rule across all football in England. So, uh, for example, in the FA Cup final, Sanchez's goal wasn't shown for about five minutes after because they had to edit it to a point where it didn't look like it wasn't showing the offside decision. And in the end, the edit uh, just showed him literally kicking the ball in the goal. Like it didn't show the move or anything. They're not allowed to show any contentious uh, incidents at all. Because it could sway the refs, um, like future, how he gives decisions in future if he sees he's got one wrong. Mm-hmm. Um, I've been at games where a goal's clearly been scored at the soft side and they've started showing it. They've like shown it and then they've had to cut it off because they realise it's just too contentious to show. Uh, interestingly, the guy I was at the game with, one of my friends, is uh, that's his job. He does it at Wembley. He's an Arsenal fan, but his job at Wembley is to cut all the highlights up and make sure it doesn't show anything. Um, contentious so no it didn't get shown in the ground which means there's no ums and ahs but any foul any tackle is never shown in the ground mm-hmm. uh, the second thing i want to talk to you about about this particular incident was the, the uh, you know the stoppage uh that, that of course we saw because of uh Shilato being uh, taken care of the, a lot of the uh, a lot of the focus at least on on, on the telly was on Shilato and you know they were showing replays again and again and they weren't really showing the the ground at that point did you did you see any communication with, between the Arsenal players, or you know, were they just walking around and was it very nonchalant in that way? Uh, it was uh, again. I don't know how much you've seen, so I may be repeating stuff that you've seen. But Knockart was going absolutely ballistic at anyone that would listen to try and get Kolasinac sent off. And then I'm not sure who it was started arguing with him, and then it sort of turned into like a 20 man shoving, not a shoving match, but a 20 man argument is probably best to say. Czech was out there. I think pretty much everyone apart from Matt Ryan and Scalotto was, was involved in it. Um, so, yeah, it was just like a 20-man argument. So, I mean, what? and then obviously the players grouped together and they, they were talking to each other. It's actually something I forgot to say earlier um, when we were talking about the goals. When both goals went in, not a single player spoke to another Arsenal player. They just walked back to the centre circle. Um, there was twice in a row in the in the first half where a crossfield ball to knockout caught Iwobi out where he, he just hadn't tracked his runner and it was a clear error everyone in the crowd was going mental and again not one Arsenal player turned and said anything to him and as much as I'm not his biggest fan I end up feeling sorry for him because when you make the same mistake two three four times I, I'm not sure if he knew he was making a mistake because it wasn't like he tried to get back and was just sure he didn't even try so and then no one no other players told him off for it so how is he if he doesn't know he's making a mistake he's not going to do anything to rectify it but the communication between Arsenal players in the whole game, apart from probably the incident you just asked me about, 
was horrible. I mean, I feel it's 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 a it's the story week in week out at this point. I mean, you you, sh- you see dropped heads, and I think after the first goal, if I'm not mistaken, there was a brief moment where the camera panned to Mustafi, and you know he was trying to rile up the rile up the armors, uh, the armory, but. I don't know. It, it just feels as if it's all forced. No one is really listening to each other when it comes to these things. As you said, there's no discussion on tactics or you know trying to try to shake things around. <sighs> Another person who has not been mentioned yet, and I'm sure he will be mentioned plenty of time in the future, uh, in you know in the upcoming hour or so, is Arsene Wenger. What do you make of him? Very inactive on the touchline. Didn't really get out of the dugout. What do you what do you sense for Arsene Wenger and his his immediate future, because there's a lot of questions surrounding that as well. Um, so I'll start off with the, it, yesterday was the first time I've ever chanted Wenger out. Um, as I said, after the City game was the first time I ever wanted him gone now. And obviously yesterday didn't do anything to change that. Um, so, yeah, I'll start off with that. Um, in terms of jumping up and down on the touchline, I mean, it's not his style. It's never going to be his style. And I don't know if... The, if that plays a role. Obviously, it's easy to think as fans that it does. But sometimes, I know, that, I mean, I'm not an elite sportsman, but and, and I know I speak for many others, that when they was playing sport at whatever particular level or whatever particular sport, someone on the sidelines shouting at them constantly didn't do them any favours. Um, look, there's a time and a place for it. Wenger doesn't do it enough. But I, I, don't, I think sometimes the criticism of him for that is probably probably goes a bit over the top. Um, yeah, it was like chalk and cheese. I don't think Chris Hewton left the touchline, whereas Wenger, I don't think, was on it. He only sort of gets up to moan at the fourth official occasionally. Um, I, I mean, I don't know. It's, it's difficult to see. We're 50 yards away. The camera never goes to him. So well, it's hard me, to see. Let me qualify that for you a little bit, because this is how I've noticed Arsene Wenger, uh, you know, his movement around the box. Uh, I feel he likes to sit in the dugout. As you said, that's not his style, which is fair. Everyone has in their own style. But I feel when he steps into the technical area, it's because he wants to watch something more closely. It's because, you know, his eye probably has caught something and uh, he wants to pay closer attention to it. Or if it's because he want to lay, you know, if, if he wants to lay into the, the fourth official, as you said. But you would imagine that when you're two, two goals down or, you know, two one down, uh, you would imagine that Arsene would want to pay closer attention to whatever, even if something has not, you know, st- uh, stuck out, essentially, to try and change things. And... I mean, we saw in the City game there were no substitutions made. And yesterday, of course, there were. But I feel like our style of play didn't change at all. It was just, you know, take one out and throw one, throw one, um, throw one else in just, just to sort of get numbers up top. And again, you know, we're just throwing numbers, but we're not trying to make those numbers count, if, if that makes sense. Um, I partly disagree and partly agree with what you just said. I think whenever you concede a goal, that's probably the time when the manager should be on the touchline. And it's not necessarily necessarily shouting and barking instructions at people but picking them up so to speak or or telling them how to act for the next five minutes sometimes you need to go straight back on the attack other times it might be like let's just settle for five minutes before we go get very rash and, and rush in so i agree with you on that part that when you when you can see goals especially when you go tuning it down he probably should be on the touchline but he doesn't have to be jumping up and down like a madman um the, with the subs I'd probably disagree with you because, I mean, besides Iwobi not playing very well, we kept having a two-on-one on the on his side. But where he was standing next to Kolasinac, like so close, it was easy for them to 
they had one man sort of covering both and then the other person could get across. And every time Iwobi did run away from Kolasinac, Kolasinac pretty much was in. I mean, not in, but he was on his own and he had space and it was easy for him to receive the ball. So I think bringing Danny Welbeck on uh, was made to free up Kolasinac because Welbeck will obviously run all over the place and and leave that space vacant. And to, I, I, when I say it worked, I mean it worked in that Kolasinac had a lot of space. Not that it worked, obviously nothing came from it. But in terms of the idea, it worked. So I don't really think that was a like for like type. position wise it is, but style is complete. Like style was completely different. And obviously I said earlier we didn't have enough people around the Bamiyang in the box. And I think bringing on both Eddie and Welbeck was to try and counteract that. And the other criticism I pointed out earlier is it wasn't a criticism of Chambers, but it's that we had nothing attacking wise on the right because Chambers is not known for going forward. And again, not that Hector done anything. He had one very good header at the back post, actually. But not that he'd done anything. But again, it was to try and change that style. So I think his subs yesterday were, were probably all for the right reason. So I disagree with you on that part. Mm. I do agree with you on the standing up. And at certain times, at least, even if it's not your style, there is a time and a place when it has to be done. Mm-hmm. Look, I mean, I don't, I don't want to get into this because I feel there's not a whole lot in, you know, a whole lot of point in beating a dead horse, but... Before we switch tracks from Brighton, Tez would not like it if you don't do an Ozil watch. So, can you give me your comments on Mesut Ozil and, and what you made of his performance yesterday? I don't think he was bad. He, look, he wasn't influential, but as I said, it the job was made hard for him by having one person ahead of him and, and, and three people or two people alongside him. He's, he's known for his incisiveness, but if he's only passing, able to pass the ball sideways or cross field then he's never going to have a good impact he, look, he was far from bad um, was he uh, a deciding factor on the game no but what Arsenal player was I, I don't think I, I'm not going to score him out of 10 or anything but he, he definitely wasn't bad He it's not like he gave the ball away all the time or made a lot of wrong decisions he had a, he had a very unearthly like shot at the start of the second half which got us a corner um, that was going in. As I said, I don't think... Uh, was he good? No. Was he bad? Again, no. Not Well, not for me. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I, I think he was very frustrated, of course. He made that very evident. Um, I think in the first half, maybe it was. Um, I think as soon, yeah, as soon as we went, um, uh, we conceded the second goal. I think he threw his gloves onto the ground and uh, did make quite a visual expression of that. that. But in the second half, I mean... Apart from the one shot he had, of course, that that's, that stands out right away, I think he was very involved, uh, dropping deep, taking the ball, running at defenders, involving other players. I, I thought he was decent, but when when you lose two one to Brighton, I think no one escapes criticism despite bringing something to the table, and that brings us on to the man of the match or you know the worst player of the game. Uh, what are your thoughts on those? Uh... Probably an unpopular opinion, uh, and it, but it was shared by many in the away end, which actually quite surprised me. I thought Jack was uh, comfortably our man in the match. Uh, not only the assist, he his delivery from set pieces was generally quite good. He's he gave away a ball a couple of times, but his passing seemed to be for the right reason, and he won a hell of a lot of tackles, um, which is something that we've often criticised him for. Um, not many silly fouls. There was one foul he gave away, which was just pure frustration. 
same way Jack done one in the first half, which was it was a ridiculous tackle, but is born probably out of frustration. But yeah, I thought Jack was our best player, and as I said, most agreed with me, uh, or most not agreed with me. I didn't obviously hear my opinion, but most people in the away end were saying they thought Jack was probably our best player, which considering how much hate he tends to get, quite surprised me. Uh, it won't be with our worst player by an absolute mile. It comes to something. And again, I kind of felt sorry for him. The cheer when he went off was honestly, I swear on my life, louder than the cheer when we scored. Really? Yeah. And it's not... Sometimes when you get loud cheers when a player is going off, it's more of an indication of who's coming on. So if in a game someone's going off, like say Jack is going off and Jack's coming on, there's going to be a big cheer because we all love to see Jack, Jack and whatnot. And it's not usually a reflection of who's coming off. But when it's Welbeck coming on, no one was particularly excited to see Welbeck. But Iwobi was that bad. It was, honestly, we was all baffled as to how he lasted that long, in all honesty. No, you can say that again. I mean, he, I, I can't think of a single thing that he did yesterday. I can't yeah, think of a single moment. Yeah, I mean, you can say that again once again. Uh, but if, there, if there's nothing else that you want to touch upon when it comes to the Brighton game, Charlie, then maybe we can switch tracks and move on to our next segment. Uh, yeah, sounds, sounds like a good idea. Okay, guys, so I think that's, that's all we will do for the Brighton game. Um, we'll move ahead now and bring in our friends from IFTV, which is the Italian football TV channel. You can find them at IFTV official. And they'll help us uh, understand Milan a little bit more and discuss this area. Uh, Michael and Marco run this channel uh, uh, based out of Brooklyn, New York. Uh, that's right, right, Michael? Yeah, that's right. Brooklyn, New York, all the way here. Pretty oh. far, different distance. <laughs> that's fantastic. Spreading the love of Italian football in, in this area. So we thought it'd be, it'd be great to bring you on and you know discuss our upcoming tie against Milan. Now, a little disclosure to our listeners that Michael here is a Milan fan. So we will definitely keep it civil and we will definitely <laughs> look forward to this tie in a very non-biased and objective way. So uh, before we get into this, uh, Michael, why don't you tell us a little bit about IFTV and how that came about? Sure. Uh, we actually uh, recently started it about, like, uh, seriously, a year and a half ago. Before that, we are kind of doing IFTV on the side. But then we, while we had our jobs, of course, and going to school, and we realized, like, it was too much. So we decided to quit our jobs and actually do IFTV, like, full-time, just going full force on it. At the end of the day, we... Uh, we started IFTV, it stands for Italian Football TV, is because we felt like Italian football wasn't getting the getting the exposure needed for being such a great league. And I'm at, Marco was Italian, but me and Mike, I'm actually Greek. So I only started getting into the Serie A because a few Greek players started going there, and I started getting more interested in it. And they weren't showing it on TV or anything like that. And I was a little frustrated. I was like, yo, this is a top league, and it's not being treated like the one. So we're, um, Marco was saying, yo, let's start a channel, let's start a YouTube channel, uh, then, uh, and we'll start from there. And so we started off with YouTube, and now we have, we're doing it on every social media right now. So we, we went through a lot so, uh, to be here, but, uh, you know, it's picking up. Yeah, I mean, I, I actually started following Marco uh, way back. I mean, if I had to guess, I would say two or three years ago, and uh, it felt like a very organic channel that, you know, that, that grew. And, I mean, kudos to you guys because I know that you've sort of diversified now and now you have, like, this video podcast that you guys do with, with guests that you have on. Mm-hmm. And, That's right. And yeah. there's some amazing content on your channel. So uh, for all our listeners out there who are interested in, in this area, I, I mean, I can only suggest that you guys uh, go and have a look at that. Uh, one thing I wanted to ask you real quick, since you mentioned uh, uh, that you, you're, you know, a, a Greek guy, uh, and do you have any sort of uh, input on Mavropanos at all? 
to be honest, I once I started going full uh, full on in the Serie A, I used to watch uh, the Greek Super League a lot. But to be honest, when I heard the links to Arsenal, I really never heard who he was. Like I heard his name here and then, but here and there, but I never seen him play. But from all the uh, from all the Arsenal fans that I had and just on Twitter, they say he's pretty good. But then again, I feel like everyone's hyped. So and he was supposed to go out on loan. I heard right, uh, Mavropanos, but then he uh, stayed. I think uh, Wenger liked him or something like that, right? That's right. I think he was brought in by our, our new scout, and uh, there, there there seemed to be some tension between the scout and Arsene Wenger. So uh, I think what what Arsene said was more of you know just uh, an authoritarian sort of comment. But a- after having witnessed him in a couple of training sessions, I think he was really impressed. So he stuck around, and he's been playing for our you know for our under 23s and whatnot. And I've not seen too much of him, but there's, you're right. I think there seems to be a lot of hype around him, but it, that could be for good reason. So I think since you mentioned, uh, you know, I thought I brought it up. But without further ado, I think we can dive into uh, our upcoming game, game against you guys on, on Thursday. So uh, from a Milan side, uh, approaching this game, what is the, what is the, you know, the tension or what is the sort of feeling right now that you're getting? To be, to be honest, like... Uh... A lot of Milan fans, because we do have a lot of Milan fans on our channel, they've been going crazy for this game. As soon as they tied with Arsenal, everyone was going nuts. It was more of like a, um, I can't, maybe of a bittersweet moment, because uh, Milan hasn't been the best in Europe, and neither has Arsenal. But right now, Milan with their new coach, uh, Gennaro Gattuso, he was never really supposed to uh, uh, stay. He was supposed to be like a temporary, since Montella got fired all of a sudden. But we got to give credit to Gattuso because he's been on, I think, a 10 uh, unbeaten streak run right now, which is pretty incredible for, for what he's doing because he got sacked at all the other jobs. He was coaching in, like, second division Italy. He was playing in uh, – he was coaching in Greece. And then he just went to a more uh, stress-free job in uh, Milan's youth. And then since Montella got sacked, he took over and he's been doing good. Maybe not in the beginning, that not that good, but he definitely evolved. Uh, he, he definitely won over the locker room. He does have a lot of heart and loves the players like that. But on Arsenal's perspective, like Arsenal, Arsenal's are a scary team. They're, they're, they're inconsistently good. I want to give them that term over there because when, when they're good, they can be teams like Bayern Munich and stuff. But when they're bad, they can lose like the other day. Then they lose to Brighton yesterday. Didn't you guys lose? Yeah, let's not. So talk about I didn't that. mean to rub, I didn't mean to rub it in, but yeah, like I said, Arsenal are such a question mark. On their good day, I feel like they can they they can go head to head to any team in the world. So that's why I feel like Milan are a bit skeptical on this one. But on their good form, they they're getting a little bit of more of a confidence boost. And they didn't get to play their derby yesterday because unfortunately, uh, Davide Astore passed away. May he rest in peace. But yeah, uh, so so it's gonna dive straight into Europa League. So they have a little bit more rest for that, that's for sure. Uh, hi, Michael. Thanks for coming on. I'm Tony. Um, what is the, the general feeling? I know, obviously, you've said that Arsenal are seen as a bit hit and miss, which we will all agree with. But are the mm. Milan fans that you've interacted with and, and you yourself, are you confident that you'll be in the draw for the next round after the two legs? Or is it more of a, a bit like it would be seen as an upset for Milan to win? What's the general thought? To be to be honest, if you said this once they drew, it could have been a little bit more skeptical. But as of now, the recent weeks, they are a little bit more confident. And since Arsenal has been playing the best, the uh, Milan are all over social media are going crazy. They're, maybe some of them are a little too confident. But then at the end of the day, it is uh, it's mixed reviews. Some people are confident. They, they think they're going to take Arsenal and others are still skeptical. So uh, definitely not a straight answer for that one. 
So in terms of the tactics, I mean, you said that, the, you know, the current form has, has been really good. And I, I would say almost since the turn of the year, you guys have been really, really good. So uh, what, what has Gattuso done to, you know, what's the sort of tactical plan that you guys see? And are there any, uh, any weaknesses that, you know, obvious weaknesses that come to mind when you're thinking of uh, Gattuso's system? Well, right now, in the beginning, beginning uh, this first game, he actually tied with Benavento. That's when ben, Benavento's the uh, team in the Serie A. Right now, they're last place. They're, they're looking to face relegation. But this is the first time they've ever been in the, in the first, in the first uh, flight of the Serie A, in the first flight of Italy. And they got their first point against Milan. I, I'm sure you guys heard of it. The goalkeeper scored against Milan in the 93rd minute and secured a 2-2 draw. But uh, did you guys hear about that one? I actually saw uh, a video on Twitter, but that's probably yeah. as much as, as as I did actually. Yeah, that's all you got to know. Because after that draw, they were going crazy. They already wanted Gattuso out because it was his first game. But slowly things started picking up. He started getting some uh, some decent draws. Uh, but in the beginning, it was all about him playing hard with the players. He didn't have he he didn't have a, a lot of tactics for his team. He wasn't known for to to be a tacticianist at all. But slowly but surely, he won the hearts of the players in the locker room. He started trusting the youth players. There's like three or four youth players uh, since he knows them very well because he played with them, you know, before he was Milan's head coach. He was with the youth. So he knew a lot of them well. He, he trusted them. He uh, he played a lot of the players that they got in the transfer market. He he also knew them. And slowly but surely, it just seems like Gattuso, Gattuso is the one that would make you run 100 miles till till, till you go. He'll never make you give up. That's a good thing about Gattuso. His weakness would definitely be his tactics, but that's definitely improved uh, for since he came. And everything else has been picking up. For the Derby, uh, everyone was pretty confident that Milan was going to win, only because Inter weren't playing that good. And But we all know for Derby, form doesn't really matter. But like I said, for, uh, for weaknesses, it's got to be his tactics. But his pros are definitely his passion and how he uh, screams at the team. And they always give 100%. So that's what I feel like Arsenal should be uh, a little bit scared about. So you just uh, spoke about uh, strengths and weaknesses in terms of his tactics and, and the, the, the running power. But in terms of on the pitch, what areas would you say uh, Milan are strong in? And where what areas are they weak in that Arsenal could potentially exploit or, or win the battle? Uh, definitely. Uh, I think Milan's been playing pretty good in defense and attack. Their midfield could be using a little bit more work, but this guy, uh, I don't know if you guys know him, Patrick Cutrone, he's been, uh, he's 19 years old, he came from the youth ranks, and he's been scoring, uh, he's been scoring consecutive games right now, and he's, he's solidified as a starter for Milan. They got players like Borini, they got players like Andre Silva, and Kalinic, they brought in the summer, and they're not, they're not being used. Milan spent over 200 million on transfers, and a lot of these players aren't being used. Most of them are coming from the youth ranks and the players they had previously. Also, Bonucci, uh, I'm sure you guys heard that he came from Juventus. He was totally a flop in the beginning of the season, and he's even the captain of the team. But now he's really uh, gelling with Romagnoli, another uh, center back, another young Italian over there. And their uh, and their defense is also looking good. We all know Donnarumma in that also, but their their midfield I think it w- might be a little bit of a weak link. They have Kessie there, Bilia also, but I don't I still don't think it's as strong as their uh, defense and attack. And uh, I think a lot of Milan fans are scared of uh, 
just Milan's attack. Even though Aubameyang's not playing, right? I believe he's cup-tied. And I, Lacazette might be injured. Uh, correct me if I'm wrong, guys. No, that's right. Yeah, I think Danny Welbeck is going to be the one leading the line. Okay. So, yeah, uh, when I heard about that, I didn't know that in the beginning. When I heard about that, that that's definitely going to boost the chances of Milan 100%. Because we all know Aubameyang is, is a top player. Yeah, and I mean, we have a saying on this on this podcast that, you know, games are won and lost in midfield. And, uh, I mean, just like you said, uh, I think Arsenal is another club right now that is struggling in midfield. So uh, what sort of a dynamic does usually Gattuso go for in midfield? Is it is it one holding midfielder? Is it, you know, or uh, does he like to play more expansive? Uh, and uh, who are the key players uh, when it comes to Milan that, you, that one should be watching for uh, uh, when it comes to an Arsenal fan watching as, as a potential threat? Uh, well, right now, uh, Gattuso plays mostly, uh, 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 like, he presses a lot on the ball. I think, I think uh, we can all agree that Milan hasn't been uh, the, be- the best team in terms of uh, results in the beginning of the season, but that picked up for sure. Right now, there's this guy, Frank Kessia, that he, he came from Atalanta, and uh, he, he's, been, uh, he's been brilliant. In the beginning of the season, like I said, hasn't been doing good. But towards now, with their good streak, they've been playing pretty well. They try to stick with two defensive midfielders because they do like to retain some possession. And they're called Lucas Bilia and Kessia. These guys are, they dispossess the ball very well. They hold it. They're pretty calm on the ball. And then they kind of have Bonaventura, the other midfielder, go up and down the wing also. So they try to attend with two center defensive midfielders, help with the defense, and attack all as a unit. But these guys really, really run. So don't. So ex, I want the Arsenal fans to know that uh, Milan are, they're not going to stop. They're going to go the full 90 minutes, and uh, they're just going to keep pressing the players and try to try to go pounce on their mistakes. I think that's uh, where, what they do well in. Also, Kutrone, he's great at his, He's a great positioner. He always knows where to be. Most of his goals came from being in the right position. He, sc- he doesn't score spectacular goals, but he just knows where to be in the box, and it's just a tap-in for him. So I feel like that, that's a big uh, alert for the Arsenal fans. So, um, as an Arsenal fan, we, we tend to have the, the feeling that if, if Mesut Ozil turns up and, and performs to as well as he can, that there's not, there's not many teams that are are going to beat us if will will Gattuso make say Biglia or someone else that they maybe uh don't use their normal high pressure game and their job is literally just to stop Ozil we see that quite a lot in the Premier League amongst the bigger teams where they'll sacrifice maybe their own system and and sacrifice a player whose job it is literally is just to stop Ozil playing and and not do much else does does Ozil hold that level of fear amongst uh Italian teams or, or Milan fans or Gattuso himself I think definitely for sure. We all know Ozil is, uh, you know, a step above a lot of these uh, players. And uh, I think Gattuso definitely knows who he is, and he's definitely not going to let him slide. I think he's going to put someone like Kessia, someone that's big and strong, to hold him. Because if Ozil gets the ball and you give him space, he's going to punish you. And uh, I really hope Gattuso doesn't make that mistakes, uh, mistake. And I hope you guys, uh, you guys probably do hope he doesn't make that, that mistake. But yeah, uh, I think Ozil, it's gonna be it's gonna be a hard day for him if uh, if Gattuso's plan does go right. So in terms of the first leg, I mean, um, of course we know that you know the away goal is gonna be something that Arsenal Arsenal are gonna try and try and bag out there. But I mean, you you, you made a valid point that you know the the form right now is is not really on our side, and it definitely is on Milan's side. Uh, what sort of a, a 
I mean, you know, I'm, I'm probably biting the bullet here, but what sort of a result are you guys looking forward to? Because it seems like there's a lot of positivity and optimism in the Milan camp right now. Yeah, that's a good question. I, I think Milan fans would be more than happy with the 1-0 win. They definitely want a clean sheet. They definitely don't want to concede that own goal for sure. But, uh, yeah, I think most of the Milan fans have been DMing us and we've been talking to, they're pretty confident and they'd be happy with a 1-0 win. We're not expecting any crazy result. We think it's going to be a, a very tight game. How about you guys? Well, what do the Arsenal fans think? Well, if you had to ask me right now, we're in such a, uh, such a slump um, and a- any of the injuries that you know, we just we spoke about uh, when it came to Lacazette. And of course, uh, Aubameyang is ineligible. So there is a lot of uh, skepticism. But I remember speaking to Tony earlier, earlier today and he said, let a 2-1 result, for example, uh, in Milan's favor wouldn't be the worst thing because I think we all can understand that getting the uh, the victory might not be possible, but getting the away goal is is what is important. Well, now, whether that's one one or two one to Milan, uh, you know we don't know, but getting that away goal is what we need. Uh, yeah, well, so obviously it's me that said a two one loss because I think most Arsenal fans, as, as as bad as we have been recently, our home record, bar in Man City, who are maybe one of the best teams in Europe at the moment, has been very good all season uh, so I feel if we only need to win at home to go through I think most would fancy our chances so as I said for me I think if, it, if we lose 2-1 then we can come and, and get a 1-0 win or I mean, obviously a 2-1 win would take it to extra time but then you can come and win by one or two goals and, and you're still within a shout so I think I think for us that wouldn't be the worst result and I think it's kind of mirrored by what you're saying whereas a lot of Milan fans don't want to concede that away goal um, because, I mean, I don't know what your thoughts are about coming to the Emirates, but if you're considering the away goal, it seems like you, you're accepting that you could potentially lose it at the Emirates. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Uh, we, all, we, all, we all know the Emirates, are, they have a good atmosphere over there. And right now, I think we're all only focused on the first leg. So I feel like if Milan do get a positive result, it's only going to boost their chances. But then again, the second leg, uh, it's a game, it's really a game of uh, two halves if you think of think about it like that one in Milan and it's going to be one in London and it ju- I think it's just going to be a battle to be honest it's going to be it could be one little mistake that can make this whole tie and see who advances they're two both they're two great teams right now and even though the form is opposite for both teams uh I feel like form does not take that much of uh take that much of a difference right now just because I feel like it's such a big fixture mm-hmm. fair uh, if you had to give us a predicted lineup that you know we can expect uh, to start um, at, at, at San Siro, what do you think is a is a decent uh, forecast on that? Uh, he, Gattuso isn't uh, isn't really crazy with his guesses, so he usually puts his usual lineup. I can just read you. I, I can read you the lineup right now because uh, sure he usually is the same thing. So we know Donnarumma. He's nine, uh, 19 years old. He's gonna be in there. Calabria, the right back. He's also a Milan's youth academy. We all know Bonucci and Romagnoli. They've been doing extremely well in the center-back partnering. And they got Ricardo Rodriguez on the the left back. He hasn't been the best. I feel like if Arsenal go down that length, uh, Milan could be in trouble because he has been a little bit shaky. Uh, In the midfield, it's usually going to be Bonaventura, Bilia, and Kessie. They've been working very well together since Gattuso came. And the top three, since it's worked, it's going to be Kutron, the striker, Suso is the right wing and Chalhanolu at the left wing. And uh, unless some, something happens, I, I'm pretty sure 90% this is going to be the lineup. This is what he usually uses in the league. How about you guys? I want to hear the lineup uh, projected for Arsenal. Tony? 
Well, uh, so it'll be Ospina in goal because he plays all of the cup competitions. Oh. Uh, see, th- what's difficult with us is we've been changing a lot between a back five and a back four. Um, I would suggest for a big away game, he will probably revert to a back five. But it's, it's we never know. It's, we have, literally, as fans at the moment, we have to wait for the team to come out to to look at the players and see what formation we're going to be playing. So it is quite hard to to second guess Arsenal at the moment. Uh, my personal opinion would be a back five with um, Bellerin at right wing back, um, Koscielny, Mustafi and probably Callum Chambers uh, as the three centre-backs with Kolasinac at left wing back. Um, then it would be Granite Xhaka with, I would suggest, Jack Wilshere because Ramsey's having a few issues at the moment. And then it will be uh, Meza Ozil and Henrik Mkhitaryan behind Danny Welbeck is what I would expect. Uh, personally, I'd find a way to put Ramsey in there because if Milan are all about the running, uh, Ramsey regularly is, is always, always our top runner. And usually on the pitch, regardless of who we play, Ramsey covers the most distance. So it seems like the kind of game that would suit Ramsey, but he's having a few issues at the moment. So I'd imagine he will miss out. Yeah, I think uh, I think it's going to be a back four um... I think Arsen is going to try and try and get something out of this game and not necessarily just uh, not concede. So I think it's going to be more of a back four. But what, what I want to explore a little bit more, because my lineup will not be that much different than Tony's other than the one-odd player, uh, what I want to explore is the right side and, and Milan's left side. Now, you said that Ricardo Rodriguez is, has been struggling a little bit. Uh, if, if you had to guess, I would say that Mkhitaryan is the one that, that you know grabs that spot. Or, or Mesodozil if we if we stick with a back five. So what sort of uh, what sort of misgivings or what, what sort of uh, you know ineptitudes has uh, has Ricardo Rodriguez shown? Because we know he's quick and he he loves to bomb uh, up and down the flank. So what do you think has been has been troubling him uh, to settle at at, at Milan? At Milan right now, we had a lot of high hopes for Rodriguez, but uh, to be honest, like he's good at free kicks and stuff. He has some good crosses. But defensively, he's not the best. He loses his temper. He gets stupid yellow cards. He he does costly things. Like, he can uh, give a dangerous foul up. And I do feel like he's Milan's biggest weak link as of now. But hopefully uh, against Arsenal, I don't know. I, I don't really know what to say. Hopefully he can pull his act together. Because uh, I feel like if you guys keep exploiting uh, his side, there could be some trouble for Milan. Uh, given that you said that um, your front three we all have on, on the flanks, it'll be Suso on the right and um, Chanoju on the left. Uh, does that mean they'll, they'll be playing quite narrow because obviously they're inverted and they're not traditional traditional wide men? So the, the Milan tend to use their fullbacks for width, obviously with Ricardo Rodriguez being uh, quite an attack-minded player. So it tend to be that them three go narrow and then the, the fullbacks provide the width. Yeah, yeah, definitely. That's a good point that you brought, actually, because uh, Chalhanoglu was never really a winger at uh, Bayer Leverkusen. He was more of a central player, so you're going to see him cutting in a lot more. But Suso is uh, more of a winger. He sends in a lot of crosses, but they are they tend to be a little bit more uh, narrow than the rest. That's why you see Calabria and Rodriguez bringing in a lot of crosses. Calabria actually scored the other day, so he does like going forward. And we all know Rodriguez loves going forward a lot, which is costly. Uh, and the Calabria, he's good. You know, he started picking up some form. He's starting. He's a uh, young Italian, so he has a lot to prove. So I think we're just going to see a, a big game from the whole team, really. One thing you just mentioned right now is, is set pieces. I mean, you guys have uh, Chalanoglu and, of course, Ricardo Rodriguez, uh, who can you know who can put in a 
a, a dangerous ball into the box or even go for goal. Uh, is, is that something that we should be careful of? I mean, I don't know how it's been recently. Uh, usually, if you have a good streak going in terms of you know making free kicks count, then then that works in your favor. But uh, what is the sort of uh, what is the you know advice you would give to Arsenal defenders when it comes to dealing with these creative players who can make a you know a tough situation from a dead ball? Uh, we all know yeah, Chalhanoglu is pretty good at free kicks too. Ricardo Rodriguez, we all know about that. But they, their conversion rate's not the best, so uh, maybe from the corners, I feel like they're more dangerous just because I feel like they have more aerial ability. We know Bonucci's uh, great in the air. I think he, the captain for Milan, we all know uh, he's fantastic there. So I do feel like corners are more dangerous for Arsenal than free kicks for Milan just because I feel like uh, more people can put, the, put their head to the ball and put it in the back of the net. Yeah, I was just going to wonder. I mean, I'd, 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 to be honest, I don't watch loads of Italian football, but where Arsenal tend to leave the centre-backs not doing much, uh, as in the opponent's centre-backs, because we have all these players that, if it be Ozil or, or um, Mkhitaryan, that want to come towards the ball. Will Will Milan get suckered into the trap of the defenders coming out and leaving the space in behind? Um, because that's ideally what Arsenal want. And when we lost to Brighton yesterday... Uh, they didn't do that. They let the Arsenal players have the ball 30 yards out and just made there, made sure there was no space in behind. Um, are, are Milan sort of quite set in their ways that they're going to defend deep? Because especially with someone like, I know he's on the left, but with uh, Ricardo Rodriguez and how hard-headed he is, I can see him uh, just sort of steaming out and trying to win the ball when in reality, tactically, it's probably better to just leave the ball with the players. I mean, that's a good point too. Like you said with Brighton, that's how uh, that's how they were. But uh, with Milan, they... they do tend to play a, a decently high line because we always feel like the fullbacks are always running back just because they're always in attack. And uh, that could be a scary thing that they uh, Arsenal might catch them on the breakaway. But they do fairly have quick players. But uh, Arsenal also, with their long balls with Ozil, I feel like that, that's your most dangerous man. Correct me if I'm wrong. If uh, they give him enough space, anything could happen. But like I said, Milan's player are going to keep pressing 90 minutes. They're not going to let Arsenal breathe. And Gattuso is going to keep yelling on the sideline. So he's gonna really make it hell, especially in the San Siro. I'm sure they're gonna, they're gonna, the ticket's gonna go pretty quick over there. And for a team like Arsenal, it's always gonna bring a crowd. So we're definitely gonna see, so we're gonna definitely see a crazy atmosphere and Gattuso screaming his head off on the sideline. Fair enough. Yeah, I was just gonna ask a question. Uh, I just had a question about uh, Wenger. It's how, how he is with his job over there. If it's like oh, secure, boy. and if this has anything to do with uh, if Milan could uh, go through or not. Or is he, does he have job security there? Because that's what we've been wondering for years. <laughs> well, uh, we don't watch much Arsenal. <laughs> if there's one thing Arsene Wenger has is job security, but I'm going <laughs> to let Tony take that one. Uh, it's probably at its weakest it's ever been um, since he's been Arsenal manager, his job security, just because the fan pressure is so so strong. I don't think there's any any single fan anymore that wants him as manager. Um, so the fan pressure has been ramped up which may or may not make the owners act, but it feels like he's never been under this level of pressure before. Uh, there's some people that seem to think, um, and they may be correct, that if we lose to Milan, uh, either heavily in the first leg or over two legs, that he will lose his job. Um, but obviously that there's no way of knowing that. But we're not, um, we're not, I wouldn't say we're in a positive vibe regarding Wenger, but whether his job's secure or not, that's purely down to the owner and the board. And obviously none of us speak for them. If it was down to the fans, he would have lost his job quite a long time ago, if we're honest. I mean, wow. if, uh, if you had to ask me, I would say that if we if we bow out of the Europa League, uh, I think there's nothing left in this season because uh, we're pretty much 
you know, done and dusted in terms of the top four. Our chances of making that are very slim, if if any. And uh, the Europa League is the only only tournament right now that that can be a, a sort of a saving grace. If we bow out, then there's nothing left in this in in this season. And at that point, bringing in a new manager uh, is I, I would a short-term new manager. I would argue is not necessarily you know beneficial to us. So I think that's one reason. And the other reason, as you as you sort of alluded to, Michael, is that his his position at Arsenal is so solidified. Although it is crumbling, and it's probably the weakest as it's ever been, but still it is so solidified. His relations with the owners, uh, certain board members, uh, are very very good, and uh, he still believes from you know from his press conference and whatnot that he is the right person for the job. So it, it seems like that he has not yet uh, realized uh, that he might not be, you know, t- steering the ship in the right direction anymore, uh, and more so that he won't be able to correct the steering anymore. So it, uh, to me, it feels like he's going to stick around, and we won't do away with him um, even by even by the summer. Actually, I think he's going to stick around for the next season as well. And unfortunately, wow. results have nothing to do with that. I just wanted to add, I think it's crazy because I, I feel like if Wenger was in any team in Italy, he probably would have got fired 50 times in a row. It just, like, uh, you see Serie A coach, if they don't do good for like two months, you get sacked. And we just find it incredible that he's been there for so long. Like, you guys obviously know more than us and stuff. I don't know if he's like uh, uh, really still committed with the team or, or what, but Arsenal has some amazing players and I feel like, Wenger could be doing more with them, or even a better manager could be doing more with them. And just still, still him having his job is just incredible. I just wanted to add that again. Uh, yeah, just to just to answer on that, it's not a. I mean, the Premier League is the same as Italy. You have a two two or three bad months and you're in trouble. But Wenger's job at Arsenal mainly because he obviously what he done with the stadium move, and also uh, in terms of the owner doesn't want to sack him because the amount of money he makes for the club is crazy. Uh, mm-hmm. Like it's he literally just makes the owner stupid amounts of money uh, but I just want I forgot one one more question that I wanted to ask um, regarding the game so we've obviously pretty much identified that Meza Ozil is our key man if you just had to name one player that the Arsenal fans should watch out of watch out for and potentially be scared of one man that uh, demands like his own attention who who would that man be for in the Milan side to be honest what you just said uh, one player for Milan I, he's not on the field. He's off the field. It's got to. So I just feel like he 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 gives all the fire that Milan need and something that Montella never had uh, in previous, which is why he got sacked. He has something. He has something that no other coach has. Gattuso like bleeds Milan. You know that that's his club uh, in his heart, and he really understands the club. And whenever there's change or something, I feel like uh, all the players have his uh, attention 100%, and they all believe in the the whole team all as one. But other than that, Bonucci does have a strong voice on the field on top of that. And uh, he's a captain. And uh, just watch out. I'm going to say now, watch out for Cutrone. This guy has been on fire. He's under 20 years old, and he's banging in those goals. Watch out for that positioning. Because if the Arsenal's defense doesn't hold on to him, I really think he's going to score. He's all over the box, and it's very hard to to keep a man on him. Fantastic. Fantastic. Quick uh, on, on a quick ending note, Michael. Any any prediction yeah. for the two legs? Oh, the two legs are just the one. Oh, that's that's tough, man. Uh, oh, you're let's, killing me. Let's over. do both. Let, let's do both so that we we, we, we know what you're thinking long term here. 
Crap. You, you guys want to go first? And then I'll see. I need a, a minute to think about that. You, sure, let me know sure. your prediction for both the legs and then I'll go. Sure. I'll, I'll get the ball rolling. I, I think we're going to lose away uh, to you guys at the San Siro. I think it's okay. going to be a 2-0 loss for us. Um, I want to say it's going to be a 2-0 win for us, which will, of course, uh, lead to extra time. So what happens after that, I'm not sure. But let's go 2-0 away. We lose to you guys. And then 2-0 we win in the first 90 minutes. And extra time is anyone's guess. So that would be my prediction. Uh, I'm going with a 2-1 loss away in the San Siro. And a 3-1 win at home just because I can't see us keeping a clean sheet. So that would put us going through, uh, obviously, 4-3 on aggregate. Let, let's just okay, also guys- take a moment here before you before you proceed, Michael, because this uh-huh. is the first time on Clock and Talks Brief History that Tony has not given a 10-0 prediction. <laughs> so usually Tony is very, very optimistic. So I just wanted to point that out. But please go ahead. Well, no, I never say what direction 10-0. So I may be really negative. <laughs> That's great. Tony, you're pretty confident, actually. I really don't think Aduzos are going to concede, uh, concede a lot, that's for sure. And if they do, they're just not going to come off the field alive. That, that's 100% sure. Because uh, I, I think the first leg is going to end 1-0, and then Arsenal is going to end 0-0. Uh, Milan's, I think they're going to just grind it out. They're going to go 90 minutes head-to-head with Arsenal, and they're just going to be exhausted and pass out at the, end, at the end of the game. That's how I feel. They're going to put their soul into this game. Because we all know how important this is for, for Milan because they're in Europe and they want to get Champions League soon. And Gattuso knows the importance of this game just because Arsenal is such you know, a big club up there also. So over two legs, you can't see Arsenal scoring? No, I, don't see, I, I can't see Arsenal scoring. I just feel like uh, Milan's presence in Europe, they, they got Europe in their DNA. And they're starting a, they're starting a project right now in Gattuso. He, he's been the leader and he's been incredible. So I feel like this, this is going to be a, a tough game for Milan. But I think Milan are going to go through one goal for both legs. Milan's advancing. We, we like nothing more than an honest guess, so we appreciate the honesty, Michael. Yeah, uh, thanks for having me, guys. Uh, it's it's going gonna, it's gonna to be a great game. I know the nerves are going to come uh, the day of or the day before, but I can't wait. And hopefully we'll talk after the first leg and we'll be like, you should have saw Kutron or something, because I feel like <laughs> he's going to score. <laughs> For sure. No, we, we had a we had a blast having you on. Thank you so much. I know we, we tried to, you know, work work things out earlier, but that didn't quite work. But uh, I guess this is a very opportune time to have you on, and we'll definitely love to have you guys on um, for you know a post first or post second leg fixture uh, to discuss uh, and review the game. Uh, for for all our listeners, you can find Michael and Marco's uh, official Twitter at IFTV Official. Uh, lovers of this area and spreading the love of everything Italian football. So be sure you give them a follow. Uh, thanks for joining us, Michael. Guys, thanks so much for having us. Uh, we'll be happy to come on for the second leg to it and talk about what Arsenal got to do if they want to uh, advance to the next uh, round. But yeah, guys, uh, thanks for everything. And I really don't want to wish Arsenal good luck, to be honest. But thanks for having me on. <laughs> <laughs> we'll take that no, in a sporting way. Thank you so much. <laughs> no problem. Thanks, guys. Cheers. Bye-bye. Yeah. Moving on, Tony, uh, we have a few questions today, and thank you to all our listeners who chimed in. Um, do you, do you want to do this one at a time, maybe, and um, have a crack at uh, a question at a time? Yeah, since there's only two of us, I think it probably makes sense, rather than, obviously, we usually both give answers to Ted's asking questions, but since there's only two of us, I think we'll uh, just ask each other the questions. Sure thing. Uh, on, your, on your go, then. Okay, so uh, from the Texas Gooner, who's obviously a regular contributor, uh, not a user, as Ted as, uh, <laughs> as likes to call him, contributor. Uh, 
He says suggestions on the best hard liquor to put in coffee might be required for me to enjoy the remaining Premier League games. Yeah, I mean, I don't know if we can endure the remaining Premier League games, even with the help of liquor at this point. I mean, I usually am not drinking liquor early in the morning. Um, I, I am using other inhibitions, um, and the least said about them, the better. But I can see that Vish replied to that with some with some rum suggestion, which is uh, 80 proof. So clearly some people are doing that better than I do. So I, <laughs> I'll, I'll let Vish's answer take over that. Uh, yeah, I mean, when I read this question, I, I was going to tweet him back and say I'm hearing good things about heroin. Um, <laughs> if you want to forget a result, it probably helps, but I don't suggest it for everyday life. That's great. Uh, speaking of Vish, he's chimed in with a few questions, and this is his first one. Does this team look divided? It seems as if there are the, there's the Wenger out faction who is creating discord because they don't like the management, and then there are, the, there are those who are stuck in between. Uh, he goes on to say, Victoria Concordia Crested. We cannot attain this victory as uh, we cannot attain victory as we like harmony. Do you think the squad is really that divided at this point, or is it just from the outside that the fans are divided? Uh, it's still, I mean, look, obviously the fans are divided. That that's not even a question. In terms of the players, it's difficult because when you can see goals and no one's talking to each other, that can be a lack of confidence. It can be. It it can be one of many things. Um, are some look, I refuse to believe that any player thinks I don't want the manager here, so I'm not going to try. Especially bear in mind that there's a World Cup coming up, so most of them players uh, will be, at, I mean, are from countries that will be uh, taking part in the World Cup. So they don't want to be <laughs> playing fives out of ten for the rest of the season because that, that puts their national squad place in jeopardy. Um, I think there, there's maybe a lack of cohesion, but I don't think it's because some players think, oh, I want Wenger out, so I'm not going to try, and others think, I still want Wenger here, so I am going to try. I just think maybe where things aren't going for you and there's no leader on the pitch and there's maybe no leader on the touchline, the players don't know where to look um, for help and they end up just playing, not only playing within themselves, but as a person, they just they do come sucked into themselves and and they're not playing as a team. They're playing for themselves because they don't know where to look for someone to guide them in, in the right direction. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't think it's necessarily divided. I think it's more perplexed in that sense that there's, you know, we've talked about instruction and whatnot and, and the lack of it. So I think it's more to do with that. And of course, you know, social media and fans sort of tugging away at each other for for potential solutions uh, is sort of what creates this, this division, perhaps, uh, or illusion of division, I, I should say. But uh, before I uh, ask you to throw me a question, Tony, I'll go on because Vish asked another one and you're in best position to answer this, which is, uh, is there any truth to the rumour that Everton won um, Arsene Wenger if he is to leave Arsenal? Um, I, I would be surprised. Again, I answer this not from knowing anything, but knowing the football industry. So I've not obviously spoke to Wenger or spoke to anyone at Everton, but knowing how journalists work and knowing how the football industry works, I would imagine that, that everyone knows Everton aren't happy with their manager. We're not happy with our manager. Farhad Mashiri, who previously owned a uh, stake in Arsenal, is an Everton majority shareholder now. Uh, there's huge theories that basically he's just Usmanov's puppet because you're not allowed to own stake in two Premier League clubs, that it's actually Usmanov that runs Everton, but he's not allowed to legally, so he's got his right-hand man to do it. Um, so I think the papers have just put two and two together that Usmanov slash Mashiri had, had Wenger 
um, he would obviously be a big attraction for for someone like Everton, despite how his flaws at Arsenal and how he's not been doing very well recently, or potentially a lot longer than recently. So I think papers are just putting two and two together there and probably getting about 12. Yeah, it feels weird, though, talking about Arsene Wenger at a different Premier League club, isn't it, though? I I had a conversation with someone the other day, and I am convinced, and people will shoot me down for this, I'm convinced if Wenger goes in the summer, he will get either the Real Madrid or PSG job. And it was funny, the person I was having the conversation with is someone who's quite well-respected, and they said at the same time, it was a text conversation, and we could see we were both typing at the same time. It was on WhatsApp. We both type in at the same time. And at the same time, we both typed pretty much exactly the same thing. I said, he'll get the Real Madrid job unless... Uh, no, I said he'll get the PSG job unless Zidane gets sacked. And then Zidane will get the PSG job and he will get Real Madrid. And they said pretty much the same thing, but vice versa. They said, oh, I think he'll, I think Zidane will get PSG, so he'll get Real Madrid. But it was literally at the exact same time. It was like unbelievable how we both said it. And again, that's not based on anything. It's based on, but knowing both clubs like him and wanted him for a long time. Um, but yeah, it, it was just interesting to that we both pretty much think in the same thing. Well, a wise man once said, great minds think alike. So I guess we'll, we'll stick around to find out what happens with that. Uh, but yeah. I think we can move on to the next question for now. Yeah. Uh, so how do you think Omri... Oh, sorry. This is from uh, Lacazette, but L-A-C-A-Z-T-E. Uh, he does um, banners and logos. So if you're looking for anything for your for your company or your Twitter, uh, give him a shout. He's done ours for us. He's done uh, the football moles. I think he's in the process of doing one for Gunas in the USA or they've contacted him about it. And he, he does do some good work. So That's right, uh, yeah. go and have a look at his stuff and, and give him a follow. Uh, but his question is, how do you think Omri would do as manager? Bearing in mind, he would most likely uh, up the morale of the team. Maybe we might see him in a part-time role if we're knocked out of the Europa League by Milan. Well, a couple of things. I don't think Henri is going to is going to be a part of the management team if Arsene is still around. I think those relationships have sort of soured, uh, and I just can't see that happening in the short term or the long term. As as a manager, if if he were to somehow you know get that job if Arsene is to leave this summer, I think that would be suicidal. This is nothing against Henri. Obviously, all Arsenal fans love him and are almost devotees of, of, of Thierry. But uh, ex- experience is one thing in this industry that, that is irreplaceable. And as much as I've, I've said that I don't want Mikel Arteta either to, to suggest that I would want Henri, I think would be hypocritical. Uh, again, Mikel has been you know, with, with Pep for a bit, but th- there's a whole... A sleuth of things that comes, you know, with uh, with being a manager, and it's not just about the football. And what's what's tough to sort of understand, I feel at times, is the fact that just because you were a good footballer, you wouldn't necessarily be a good manager. I think we, you know, we've seen that theory, uh, you know, in in real life. I mean, most recently with Gary Neville, and I think uh, pushing Andre into that position would would be more of a PR stunt than the, than a head on shoulders and calculated move, if, if that makes sense. Yeah, I mean, I take a slightly different view on it. I, I don't want him as manager. And interestingly, for those of you that are, are active on Twitter and, and follow loads of rumours and stuff, that uh, the plug, I think he's the plug AFC's Twitter, I'm not sure. He rang me last night after the game and we were talking about managers and stuff for quite a while. And, and he would he's a big advocate of Omri. I think yeah, Omri was his hero as a player. Um, and he he's a big advocate. advocate. I'm not... And, for different reasons to you, 
Um, I, I agree that it probably would be a PR stunt, but uh, it would probably lift the morale, which is maybe arguably all we need now. For if you give him it short term for until the end of the season, maybe it is only a, a, a morale boost you, you need, and it also gets the fans back on side. Having said that, the reason I wouldn't give it to him is because a lot of these players have played with him or he was the coach of the under-16s, I think it was, while they've been at the club. So they'll know him as mate, Thierry. They'll know about his private life. They, they'll, they'll know him as a friend. Um, they probably, some of them maybe, WhatsApp him from time to time. A manager has to be a respected figure. And I'm not saying he wouldn't be respected, but it's it's very different to go from someone who's who's your mate and and you can just talk about casually you can talk about going for drinks with or whatever i know it's obviously different because they're professionals to then someone who you've got to call boss and you have to listen to every word he says and and do everything he says in, in normal life when when colleagues uh one of them gets promoted so they can be best of friends as colleague and then one of them gets promoted to the other one's manager and the the relationship sours because it's suddenly they're not equal even though they've always been equal and that's kind of what i feel the problem would be with Henri. i mean he's played with Ramsey, Jack, Koscielny, Nacho, I think. Yeah, I'm pretty sure Nacho. Um, and then he was a coach while um, the others were there. And also some of them he's hammered on on Sky Sports. Maybe maybe uh, Hector he's also played with, sorry. But uh, maybe correctly he's hammered on Sky Sports. But you don't want someone to come in and it'll be like, oh, this is your manager. And you automatically think, well, this bloke don't like me. I, I've got proof of that on YouTube. So uh, for that reason, I don't want him because I don't think, uh, the players would respond. I think the fans would, but I don't think it would be good for the players. Yeah, and, and to your point, just to just to quickly touch upon that, I think it would be a short-term thing. You know, I mean, I think we're looking for quick solutions right now to make the most of this season, or actually just the Europa League at this point. Uh, but I think it would be a short-term fix. Uh, a morale boost could do us really well right now. I mean, we're really struggling for confidence. And on, on paper, uh, we have uh, quite a talented side, one could argue, especially up top. And someone like Andre coming in and you know bringing that freshness would would of course help, but I wonder if that's the right thing to do. You know, as you said, in the long term, because we don't know how that's going to pan out um, come next season and so on and so forth. Uh, so I think that's a, that's a very decent point. So there you go. Like I said, you get two points on what we think about Andre as a manager. Uh, moving on and back to the Texas Gooner, he chimes in with another question. Um, he goes on to ask, what are your thoughts on Arsene's comments uh, complaining about scheduling and fatigue after the Brighton loss? Interesting to point out how he made zero substitutions uh, against our loss uh, to City. Um, this is one of them things. and I'm not. This is not a criticism of anyone else, but my main gripe with Arsenal Fan TV, and I know this is changing the question slightly, has always been with certain characters. You know what or certain people, whether they're characters or certain people, you know what they're going to say before the, the interview starts. I knew this was coming. It, I, I could have told you before the game, if we lose, it's going to be an excuse that we played on Thursday. What I didn't really think about and the, what the Texas Luna highlights is that about the lack of substitutions on Thursday. I didn't think about that, to be honest. Um, I, I mean, I, I don't really know what to think of it. As I said, it's just it seemed like one of me, that, to me, like one of them, uh, preempted excuses um, would would change in three people with 20 minutes to go on on Thursday made a whole lot of difference in the freshness probably not but should fatigue be an excuse also probably not it's worth bearing in mind that they last played last Saturday so they had eight days rest and in that time that it was our third game obviously Brighton being the third so 
I mean, you, you could argue that fatigue's an excuse, but it shouldn't be. Also, bearing in mind that a lot of them didn't play against Osterlund the Thursday before, so it's really the first time in the season that the, the players are having to play three times in the week. And in a normal season, when you're in the Champions League, you're playing three times every week. And these are all, pretty, every one of these players played in the Champions League. So It's nonsense, nonsense, isn't it? I mean, you how, how you can come out and, and put this down to scheduling and to a packed season, that it's, it's ludicrous because it happens week in, week out during the first half of the season. Sort of changes, of course, during the winter because of, you know, other cups coming in. But it happens throughout the season. I mean, I think it's just deflection, if you ask me. And I think it's, it's, uh, I think it's something that should be just shunned because we all know that he's just trying to distract us from the result at hand. Yeah, I said you knew it was coming before. Yeah, yeah. Let's move on, though. Uh, so the next question is at Rudhran, R-U-D-H-R-A-N-78. Um, he's asked, I'm trying to find what the actual question is. Um, so he's, he's got a quote. Well, not a quote. He said, Wenger is very bit delusional and arrogant. He is in his own universe. The best possible result for this club is a loss on Thursday. The board don't have the balls. It has to get worse before it gets better. Wenger ain't winning the Europa League, irrespective of the Milan tie. Yeah, he's gone on a little bit of a rant, hasn't he? Yeah, and he says, and this is not a case of he wants the club to lose because it helps his Wenger out agenda. He needs to be sacked just for his post-match comments over the years. He is not normal. I mean it literally without malice. He will run the club to the ground. My question rants never get discussed on the cars. Hope this one does get discussed. Short-term pain for long-term gain. <laughs> uh, I, I mean, he's, he's a little clever because he said that, the, and this is not a case of he wants the club to lose because it helps his Wenger out agenda. But I, I beg to differ with that because he's, he said in his first, uh, you know, first half of his tweet that the best possible result for the club is to is, is a loss on Thursday. Um, I think that's that's quite pessimistic, uh, and I don't mean to dig you out, Rudran, but I I mean I, I don't think any of us disagree with your your assessment of Arsene Wenger right now. You know he is a little delusional, of course. There, it goes without saying he's arrogant. He's French. Most French people are arrogant. Uh, but to to say that you know the best possible result for us is to lose on Thursday, I think is is perhaps the wrong way to go. I mean, it certainly looks like that, you know, we'll, you know, a 1-0 loss, perhaps, as, as Tony, you said during our last podcast, would not be the worst result. But we shouldn't obviously be actively, you know, looking for a loss. And I, and I, I think that he has to go. I mean, there, there's no question about that. It's just a matter of when now. And it's just a matter of whether there's someone at the club who has the willingness and, you know, the impetus to, you know, to bring, bring that to a close. Uh, I, I was listening to Josh Kroenke on the, the Woj podcast he was on this past week, and uh, there was not a whole lot of Arsenal content you know, that, that uh, Josh spoke about, but it was interesting because there were bits and pieces that you know, he, would, he would speak about. This was more about a, a Josh Kroenke po- podcast than you know, Josh Kroenke's team's podcast. And one thing that was very interesting to me was how Josh has been relying on Arsenal. Uh, he actually mentioned uh, Wenger a couple of times, and uh, he mentioned how uh, jo- he's been guiding Josh, you know, uh, through other teams as well. Because what Arsene has done at Arsenal uh, that has worked in the past, he's tried to translate that into his other teams. So it seems like Arsene is almost seen as a statesman at the club, uh, even from the brass, not just from the players and you know uh, your your other staff. 
but th- there's this real relationship that uh, that Arson has with the owners, and you know, it's that sort of situation that you know gives me a little bit of doubt whether you know he'll be pushed out. I think it has to come through a mutual agreement, um, if not through Wenger stepping aside on his own. But we all know the you know the the chance of that happening are few and far between. So. I think it's a matter of time. We all hope that we can come to a conclusion with this story. And um, I think we've done well to discuss discuss uh, Ruzran's question. What do you think, Tony? Uh, I just want to touch uh, very, very quickly on it because I want to get through so, as many questions as possible. But um, no, I never want us to lose. I don't really care about the situation. I never want us to lose. Uh, and also, as, as Ruzran said, at the moment, no one seems to have the balls, Ruzran's quote, to, to pull the trigger on him. What makes Rudran or anyone else think a, a loss in Milan will, will change that and someone will suddenly go, oh, actually, I'll, I'll do it. Look, the, the problem is at Arsenal, for, for a long time, the vast majority of the board have wanted him gone. But Stan has final say and he's doubled Stan's financial asset in the last year, pretty much. So they're, look, they're putting people in place to to change Stan's mind. And it's, as these assets start dwindling, the TV money gets a bit less, the Champions League money gets a bit less. Then, then he'll have to act. Um, but I don't think a loss to Milan, unless it's really heavy and the players show that they don't want to play anymore, um, will will make anyone grow a pair, so to speak. Fair enough. Uh, this is from M Double A Gunner Tony, and he goes on to actually make an assumption uh, and then ask you a question, which is now that Wenger's gone, do you think we'll be able to win a game? I don't know what he's talking about, if I'm honest. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't know. It was sent literally about five minutes after the final whistle. But um, the, he's not gone. We'll, Arsenal Football Club will win games in the future, whether it's with or without Wenger. I think we can just move on from that. It was a question in the heat at the moment. I'll, I'll uh, send you another one in that case. Uh, this is from a regular listener, which is Glenn Baxter. Thanks for chiming in, Glenn. He goes on to say that there is evidence of Wenger losing the dressing room. Or is there evidence of losing uh, of Wenger losing the dressing room? Question mark. Do you see any signs or do you think I'm just seeing things? Three games in a row, we failed to start well. Shocking. Um, look, I think I kind of touched on it earlier where I don't think he's lost the dressing room. Um, I think... Well, he hasn't, he hasn't. He hasn't in a Mourinho sense where the players completely think I can't be bothered to play for this bloke, which happened at Chelsea. Um, I think the players are a bit lost and they don't know where to look for leadership. So they're not particularly revolting against Wenger. They maybe just don't trust in Wenger uh, the way they used to. In terms of um, three games in a row where we failed to start well, I'm not particularly sure I agree with that. I mean, it depends how long you quantify as a start. We like Yesterday, you can you can definitely say we didn't start well, but... Up until that corner, I think we'd pretty we'd probably had about seventy five percent of the ball, and then they scored, and then they scored another one. But yeah, you can definitely count that as not starting well. I'm not sure how. I think it was quite a bit into the game where Bernardo Silva got his first goal the other day, and and in the final, I thought in the first half, pretty much as a whole, we played well apart from one stupid mistake from an individual, which is nothing to do with a team losing the dressing room. Um, we spoke about this before: is what is a good start? Is a good start coming out and and being 3-0 up after 15 minutes. Well, of course that is, but sometimes a good start is being 0-0 after 15 minutes against a good side. Um, and again, how long is a start? Is a start 5 minutes, 10 minutes, 45 minutes? It's all stuff that you can't really quantify. But, I, I mean, I personally wouldn't say we've come out and had terrible starts in the last three games. But that's my definition of a start, and 
someone else's will be different. So it's not one of them where I would say someone else is wrong if they felt differently. I have to agree, actually. I think Brighton was actually out of the three games our worst start. Uh, and not just because of the goal, uh, but even because of the way we played. Uh, despite being 3-0 down to City, I would argue uh, our, our first half against City was overall, in a, in a, in a balanced manner, I think it was better than, than the first half against Brighton. Would you say you agree? Um, I mean, the cup final, 100%. Uh, on, on Thursday, the, the performance wasn't as bad, for sure. Uh, we performed better in that in the, the first half against against City than we did yesterday, yeah. Hmm. Glenn has another question now, so I'll, I'll throw this at you uh, before we move on, uh, which is what more needs to happen for the club to wake up? Uh, Wenger is past uh, it if he needs to go. Uh, as for this game, what an emb- embarrassing result. Three games in a row. We've started slowly. What needs to happen to get the players ready for the game? Uh, well, obviously, I can ignore the slow start thing because we've just, we've just touched on it. Right. Um, in terms of what more needs to happen, who knows? Some people seem to think that he could be gone before Milan. Um, as far as, as as I understand, a lot of the board don't want him. Stan potentially does, but he definitely won't sack him unless there's a replacement. In in and to be honest, I think they would tell him to walk rather they'll say walk or you're getting sacked than to save face. He would walk, but unless there's a replacement lined up, they're not gonna they're not gonna um, fire the gun, so to speak. Um, but yeah, what more needs to happen? Who knows? As I said, some people think it will happen before Milan if a replacement's ready. Others think a loss to Milan will cause it. Others seem to think he's going to see out the rest of this season and next season, which he obviously see out the rest of his contract. So I don't know. Is the is the only honest way I can answer that? Fair enough. Let's move forward quickly so that we can move through these questions and uh, uh, yeah. bring this podcast to a close. Uh, Red underscore Fulcrum, um, who I think is a new person to the podcast. So welcome. Uh, if you're not, then sorry. I don't usually read questions, so maybe I'm wrong. But um, Correct me if I'm wrong. Remember you guys said no player entered the field with the intention to lose, but what exactly is wrong with Arsenal? They show us uninspiring performances game after game. I think we can probably gloss over this one because I think you summed it up pretty well during Glenn's question that it's not essentially you know, what's wrong with the players on the field because it's, it's the lack of instruction, it's the lack of a system. So I think maybe we can move forward. I think it's been, this one's been discussed quite a few times. Okay, uh, so Kieran Bailey, who I actually uh, sold a ticket to yesterday and met him at the ground. Uh, didn't really speak to him too much because he got there quite late, but uh, don't worry about that, Kieran. He was really apologetic. Uh, but it's the first time he's asking a question, uh, and this was straight after the game as well. He said, sack Wenger now or wait till the end of the season, and if you sack him, who comes in? I would... Uh, I'm probably going to get a lot of shit for this, but I would never sack Arsene Wenger. Um, I, I, I couldn't... If I was in position to do it, I couldn't do it. Uh, I'll be honest. It'd be, it's easy for me to say, yes, I'll sack him and bring this and this sole person in. But let's say he walks uh, at the end of the season. Um, I have a personal bias for, for Yogi Lo, so that would be my go. I know there's a lot of doubts about him because his club career is nowhere as stellar as his international career. But uh, I feel like he is someone who can bring the best out of teams, I think, We've seen the German squads, even when they've played their second-string teams, I think the most recently in the Confederations Cup. Uh, there, there seems to be this, this philosophy, this guiding philosophy, which is based on attacking football, possession-based attacking football, and that's something that I enjoy more than uh, a defensive exhibition. Uh, a, lot, a lot of people would say someone like a Diego Simeone or, a, or a Leonardo Hardim would, would also do as well. 
and I have no arguments uh, against that. But if I had to choose, that would be what would be my go. Uh, my, I would sack him now. Uh, I, again, I would invite him to resign now, um, and I would see if Ancelotti fancies, fancies a three-month audition. That would be, in my mind, a, a, a little weird because you're sacking Arsene Wenger and bringing in someone who is just like Arsene Wenger. You know what I'm saying? I, as I said, I've always said this about Arsenal, that I just think we're too stale. Um, people know where they can cut corners. They know what they can get away with. Again, comparing it to people's everyday work, when you first start a job, you work your nuts off and you come home every day and you're knackered because you're working 100% at all times. And then after six months, you know, oh, the boss doesn't look at this thing or the boss goes to lunch at this time so I can put my feet up for a bit or whatever. You know where you can cut corners and where you can slack or, oh, when I first started, I wasn't taking any fag breaks. But now I know that I can take three five-minute fag breaks a day and then go and make a couple of cup of teas and suddenly that's half hour of my day gone. Um, whereas you don't do that at the start. And I think, I'm not saying Arsenal players take fag breaks, that's not a dig at Jack Wilshere, um, <laughs> but I think that Arsenal players all know every corner they can cut, and it may start off as you're only laxing 5%, just to have that little bit of a rest, but then you, you find more and more you can get away with, and um, I think the players need to be more on edge. And I, I honestly don't think we sometimes even need a great manager, we just need someone to, to get them back to firing at 100%. Fair enough. I think we could do with a fresher right now. Um, so as much as I don't see it happening, I wouldn't necessarily mind it if it if it did happen. I think we could do with that. Uh, so let's move on to our next question. I think we just have a couple left. Uh, this is from Akash Vijay, and he wants to know, he's thinking long-term here, and he wants to know if Arsenal can qualify with the Champions League in 2019-2020. Uh, he goes on to remark that the squad is completely dog shit. As horrible as it sounds, I somewhat agree with him. When everyone's been, like, in the last few weeks, hammering Wenger particularly, I've said on here, I don't think our squad's as good as the other six or the other five. So I, I think we're probably in a position our squads deserve to be in. We're not performing the way we should, which is what's annoying. But we're position-wise, if you look at squad for squad, I, I think we're where we deserve to be. And I know you disagree with that. We spoke about it before. Uh, look, can we qualify? Yes. Um, as I said, if all these players start firing in at 100% and we're a formidable side but you only have to look that we haven't really got any injuries and you look at our bench yesterday or, or on any given day really since since January and you think who's going to come and do anything like say I mean as I said you can just look throughout look at the bench and I know look yesterday we had Ramsey and Lacazette out but so you'd say they would be two of the players that come on but no one looks at our bench and thinks fucking, we're going to struggle when they bring them on in the last 20 minutes. I don't want to compare us to City because they, they spend, they're spending crazy money. But you look at United and every week they've got either Martial, Rashford. I don't particularly rate Lingard, but he gets goals. Mata, uh, Ibrahimovic even. that At least three of them are on the bench. So you look at their bench and think there's real game changers there. You look at ours yesterday and you think, well, that Enketia we don't really know about. Welbeck will run a lot. And for me, that's the difference between us and, um, and the other teams. I completely agree. I mean, uh, what, what I, as you said, what I disagree with you on is perhaps some individual qualities, you know, as individual players. But as a unit, as a team, if you had to compare us with the, with the rest uh, in the top, top six, um, I, I, I think there's no arguments there. I mean... Of course, it, 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 it works very closely with, you know, how we performed so far this season. So, of course, if things went better, uh, went better, then we would have higher 
uh, expectations and you know from from players who are underperforming right now. But at this moment in time, I think you're absolutely bang on. I don't think I have any arguments for that. Okay, so I'll go on to the next uh, question, which is from Srinath Murali. Um, I, I can speak. It's just Tez that can't. <laughs> um, I mean, Murali, if anyone that ever watches cricket knows how to say that. So. That's right. And he's at his Sri Daguna. Um, did things just get real, or is this another storm that can be withered? Also, maybe this squad isn't the greatest we have had, but surely there's enough depth and talent to compete with Liverpool and Chelsea, if not City. That's squarely on the manager, isn't it? Um, for his first part, I think things just did get real. I, I don't think that this is just another storm that that can be withered. And that's not based on just the result, but on, on the performance, I would argue, because... See, we've, we've sat here and talked about our, our defensive ineptitudes, right? Day in, day out. But, but really, I mean, if you, if you bring an alien onto this planet who has good football knowledge, as weird as that might sound, if, you, if that alien looks at our team, he will tell you that this team is going to score a lot of gold. And that seems to be our problem right now. We are out of ideas. We are out of creativity. Uh, I noticed something yesterday which was shocking to me. Uh, I should have brought this up earlier. So, But there was a transition in which Macedozo broke, and he had three runners in front of him. I think Mkhitaryan, Iwobi, and Aubameyang. All three of them made decoy runs. And that just shows you that, A, there's a lack of instruction, and B, that players are sort of hiding. And at that point, you have to, you have to reconsider where you are as, as a team and as a football club. And th- that, that gives me a lot of pessimism because... If players are not willing to take it up upon themselves to to make things happen, then no one else is going to do it. No one's going to gift you a goal. So I, I think things are getting real. And as, as Kevin Campbell said a couple of weeks ago on our podcast, that it's only going to get worse, guys. So I think till the time we really shake things up at our club, that includes the manager, that includes some of our staff perhaps, uh, uh, some of the players. I don't think this this is just another storm that, that you know we can gloss over because... It, it's it's really hard, and there was this gentleman who tuned into BBC Live Five when Ian Wright was on there just earlier today, and he was crying talking about the Arsenal. I don't know if you saw that, Tony. Uh, I haven't. I've seen it. got tweeted onto the timeline, but I didn't watch it. Yeah, I mean, for all our listeners, and uh, you know, you guys should listen to this because, I mean, we all feel it, but when you hear someone say it and articulate it, I think that that hits home more and. Uh, I mean, as for his second question, I think we've discussed about depth and talent, and uh, it, it's hard to tell because form right now is so so strong a factor in in thinking about the Arsenal and judging the Arsenal that whatever else they might have, you know, their best moments from from our players, it's difficult to really put that into an equation and you know think objectively. Um, I don't know if you have something to add on this, Tony, but really for me, it's it's a lot of confusion right now when it comes to the depth and the talent. Uh, so just I'm going to be very quick, but in terms of the first part of the question, yeah, it has got very real. I think I, I'm not sure I might be putting words in your mouth here, but I think initially you always said that he thought he would see out his whole contract. Uh, now, from what I hear at games and what I see on Twitter, there's very few people that think that, that even the, the most ardent of, fan, of Wenger fans seem to only think he'll see out the season, if that. So I think that is an indication that it's got real, and if obviously you haven't changed your mind on that, I don't mean to put words in your mouth. Um, in terms of the squad, I just don't think one form isn't up 
with the others. And I think, especially since January, we I don't think we have a squad. Again, I just listed, obviously, United. But you could argue that they spend a lot of money. But Chelsea, who in recent times haven't spent a lot of money. I know we always think of them as, as money bags, but they haven't spent crazy amounts recently. But you think yesterday they had Giroud and Morata on the bench. We had Welbeck and Nketiah. There's levels to this shit. Yeah, yeah. I mean, as for seeing out Arsene's contract, I think that's the problem, isn't it? That we all sort of hold on to what's popular on, on Twitter and on social media, and we think that will happen because that's the voice of the majority. But having heard Josh on, on the pod, and of course, as I said, it was you know, very brief, the, the mentions of Arsenal and Arsene Wenger, I feel the relation between the owner and the manager is so strong. And I would go as far as to say unbreakable. Um, that's the sense I got from, the, from you know, what little Josh had to say on that podcast. But it, 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 I just don't get any confidence you know, from our owners who are anyways very silent uh, but when you do hear them, it, it sounds as if they're in awe of Arsene Wenger. And that sort of gives me no hope when it, when it comes to change. So that, that's my only thing. And I do, I do think he'll continue. I do think he'll see his contract out. And dare I say, if he's offered an extension, which I wouldn't necessarily count out, to be honest, I think he'll sign and stay on because he honestly believes that he's the right person for the job. And when when Arsene has that sort of confidence, I don't think anyone's going to be able to rock him out of position. Yeah, fair enough. As I said, each their own. I, I, I really don't think he'll be in charge for the first game of next season, but it's a, it's a matter of opinions. Um, and that's all it is. It's, it's not what anyone... What, like, it's not, you're not saying you want him to, to be manager and get an extension, or you might be saying that, but that's just an opinion on what you think will happen. Whether what we want to happen is could be completely different from the opinions that we think will happen. Yeah, I'm definitely forecasting. It's definitely not what I, what, what I want, but it's definitely something I predict. But I think that's it for the questions. And uh, is, there, is there anything else you would like to talk about today, Tony? Um, no, that's, uh, that's all from me. Just, uh, sorry, there was one more. It's not really a question. It's more of a statement from We Are Arsenal. Uh, oh, it's I'm sorry I missed that. Tomek6. Oh, my God, there's so many numbers. <laughs> he doesn't want you to follow him because anyone with Twitter with that many numbers is not looking for followers. Um, but he said, fans need to talk directly to players too at Colney, Wenger out. Well, he actually said Conley and Wenger, but I get what you mean. Um, English probably isn't his first language. Um, it's a symptom I, uh, of the uh, just, real world, isn't it? Well, I mean, I'm only going to say that. The only reason I bring this up, because it's not really a question, is... I know a lot of the listeners abroad, our audience abroad, like to know sort of how things are run at, at, at Arsenal. And uh, you can't get near anyone at Colney. It's not like it's not like they park in a public public car park. Uh, at best, you may be, as they stop at the gates and wait for the gates to be opened, you may be able to see them through their car window. But in general, you can't get near them at Colney. So you could stand be standing there saying what you want. They, they, they wouldn't know. Yeah, I mean, so that's just the insight to how things are at the training ground. There's, like when people say, oh, you need to go and speak to the players. Believe me, if you could speak to the players, there'd be thousands of people there every day. Well, I mean, I completely agree. And I think that there's an element of reality, of modern reality to it, that, you know, social media has sort of, you know, it's given the illusion to people, to fans, that you're closer to the players. No, you're not. You know, everyone, there's 10 faces before for most players, you know, when it comes to social media, you have a PR department and you have your the players' entourage and so on and so forth. But I, I mean, I feel if you re- rewind fifteen twenty years from you know from now, mo- most players 
uh, at, at football clubs would would be very active in the community. And I don't, t- I'm not talking about being at foundations and stuff, but active at a pub. You know, of course, the culture was different back then, and and going out drinking after training and always was very rampant. But players, I feel, were more involved in the community and on a personal level with people. There was more interaction. There was there was this there was this sense of of, of a family almost one could argue and I, I feel globalization has sort of impacted that to quite a high degree and it has go- engulfed uh, the communication even more uh, I, I, from what from what we are Arsenal says I think I agree I mean I think there needs there needs to be a bond that's resurrected and not just at our club but in most clubs because I feel clubs are way more distant now uh, than their local fan bases and when you take a cosmopolitan city like like London I think it only magnifies because you have so much going on in that city as opposed to a, you know, a more blue-collar blue uh, town like Burnley, perhaps, where you know, Burnley Football Club is a pride of the town. Um, so I think, I mean, We Are Arsenal is absolutely spot on. Um, unfortunately, it's just a consequence of reality and, and what technology has done. So it, it's, it's sad, but uh, we, we can hope that technology in the future makes it easier uh, and we, we can sort of address this problem. Sorry I went on for a little bit there. No worries. All right, so I think we can wrap up for today. Uh, thank you for, for listening. Thank you for downloading. Thanks for being with me, Tony. No worries. And we'll catch you on the flip side. We'll let you guys know when we're recording next. And in all probability, it should be the day following the Milan game. So uh, watch out for our tweet asking you for your questions, for your rants, for your comments. Thank you so much for listening. Thank you for chiming in. And we'll talk to you soon. Bye-bye.